This morning we will continue our study of uh, the wisdom books in the Old Testament. Uh, There are a lot of wisdom psalms, a lot of wisdom throughout the Old Testament, but three books that uh, we have identified as wisdom books. Uh, The first one is the book of Proverbs. It's about wisdom and success, Uh, how to live life in a God-honoring way. It's the skill. Remember, wisdom means skill. It's a skill of living life in a God-honoring way that, that makes life go smoothly, that makes life work, that leads us to uh, success. But sometimes we suffer, don't we? And that's where the book of Job comes in. Uh, the book of Job is about wisdom and suffering. Uh, how do we live wisely in God's world when life falls apart uh, in this broken world? Uh, we'll look at that today, and then next Sunday we'll uh, finish up by looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Wisdom and Frustration. Now, how do we live wisely when life is frustrating, when it's, it's so fleeting? It's, it's here one moment, gone the next, and sometimes it, it simply doesn't make sense to us. It's, it's frustrating, and that's the uh, book of, of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This morning, though, uh, we are looking at the book of Job, and uh, I want us to look at Job chapter 28. Uh, That's a good window into the message of the book, and so if you would find that in your Bible or on your Bible app, or if you use the chairback Bible, just like the one I'm holding, uh, you can find Job 28 on page 459. Uh, page 459, we're going to look at Job 28. A few years ago, some extended family members of mine felt like God had let them down. I feel free sharing their story because they are uh, both with the Lord now, but they were in their 70s at the time, and uh, one of them uh, ended up with cancer. And then a few months later, uh, had some eyesight issues, and uh, one day they got into a car accident, the car was totaled. And these are people who have walked with Christ for, uh, for years. They were devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I was quite surprised to hear them say, why is this happening to us? We've tried to be good Christians. Why would God let this happen to us. Part of me was shocked to hear them say that because I thought, well, they've, they've followed the Lord for so many years and certainly, having studied Scripture, they wouldn't ask a question like that. And I thought, yes, but I know my own heart and I know when I face suffering that I'm tempted to respond that way. Uh, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? I, I try to serve you. I try to follow you and let, yet you allow this into my life. Job chapter 28 is a window into how we should respond when we face undeserved suffering. Oh yes, I know that all of us have sinned, we fall short of God's glory, and so did the character by the name of Job, but we also find out in the book of Job that he didn't deserve his suffering, God says so. We'll see that in a moment. Job 28, though, helps us understand how we can respond. It tells us what it looks like to 
be wise when we suffer. And I believe it is a window into uh, the entire book. What we have in Job 28, I believe, is an interlude. The CSB, which we use here at North Sub, uh, titles this chapter, A Hymn to Wisdom, uh, probably more of a poem than a, uh, than a hymn, but, but I believe they're right on that. Uh, some translations of the Bible, and, and you understand that, that these headings are not part of the inspired text, but they put headings there to help us, and some uh, identify this as Job's speech. Some say Job continues his speech. I don't believe that this is Job speaking at all, and uh, we'll, we'll see why as, as we go. But Job 28 is this, this interlude in a, in a very frustrating section of the book of Job that helps us understand how we can live when we face undeserved suffering. Now, before we get to Job 28, we have to understand how in the world did uh, we get there. Well, in Job chapter 1, we're introduced to this character by the name of Job, and what we find out is that, uh, that this guy had it all. Uh, you read Job chapter 1, verse 3, and there is a, a description of his estate. Uh, we find out that he had seven sons and three daughters. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, Job was the greatest man among all the people of the east. So here is somebody who had it all. He had a life that, that other people would envy. And not only that, we're told that he was blameless and upright. Uh, the writer tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that Job was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And God confirms that. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, No one on earth... No one else on earth is like him, like Job, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Problem is, that raised a question on the part of Satan, the adversary, a question that really drives the book. It's in chapter 1, verse 9. The question is, does Job fear God for nothing? God, for reasons that we don't know why, said to Satan, take a look at Job. He's an upright man who fears me. There's no one else like him. And Satan responded by saying, yeah, but does Job fear God for nothing? And we know that Satan's answer is no. And he essentially says, yeah, he fears you, but he fears you because of your blessing, not because you are worth it. Back in Job chapter 1, verse 9, listen to uh, Satan's answer. He said, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God is on trial. And he allows Satan to make Job's life miserable. 
two times in order to prove that Job fears God for no other reason than God alone is worthy of our worship and praise. Job proved God right two times. Chapter 1, verse 22, throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. God said, all right, you can, uh, you can strike him within limits. There was a great storm, a great wind. There was a raiding band of thieves who came and took a lot of Job's property. The storm destroyed the house of his oldest son where the other siblings were gathered and they were all killed. Yet, chapter 1, verse 22, throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Satan comes back, God says, look, Look at Job, he's an upright, godly man. Satan says, yeah, but he suffered, but if I put a hand on him, if you actually touched Job, you afflicted him, then it would be different. And so, again, God giving some limits says you can't take his life, but go ahead. And so he afflicts Job, and Job is miserable. He's got boils all over his body, he's... He's in an ash heap, scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery. And yet in chapter 2, verse 10, throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So twice, God was proved to be right. God's policy of blessing the righteous is right. And Job is proof that people can worship God for who he is, not just because he blesses them. And yet, the story is far from over. In chapter 3, Job laments his situation, and his words are like a psalm of lament. Then he has three friends who show up, and they, in their kindness, didn't say anything for seven days. They just grieved with Job. But then, beginning in chapter 4, in verse 27, they, uh, chapters 4 through 27, the friends uh, began to dialogue and they began to try to sort out the reason why Job is suffering like he is. Essentially, they all argue that Job is facing God's retribution. So now Job is on trial. I mean, his friends were right about a lot of things. It's just that they misapplied a lot of the wisdom that they had been taught. We know that God ultimately gives people what they deserve, right? I mean, even in the New Testament, Galatians 6, verse 7, tells us not to be deceived, that whatever a person sows... That will they also reap. God's, God's not going to be mocked. People will get what they deserve. The, the problem is, and this is where we run into difficulty with the, the counsel of Job's friends, they approach this as if every, every act of suffering can be traced back to sin. It's a misuse of this idea that God gives good for good and bad for bad. Well, we, we know that he does that. He's the judge. 
And, and yet, we can't take that and explain every situation in life that way, and that's what the friends tried to do. There are three rounds of dialogue in chapters 4 through 27, and quite frankly, uh, this is a very, very tedious part of the book. Uh, I suspect that this has uh, derailed as many read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year programs as perhaps the book of Leviticus, which, by the way, is a wonderful book, but it's a hard read, isn't it? And if you read through Job 4 through 27, actually all the way up to chapter 38, and you throw up your hands and say, this is so frustrating, I just want to hear from God, that means you've read it correctly. Because I am convinced that this book is designed to wear us down. So we say, stop, I, I just want to hear from God. And yet these chapters are, are very tightly structured. There are three rounds of dialogue. In chapters 4 through 14, the friend's message is basically this. Look, admit that you're wrong and deal with your sin. In chapters uh, 15 through 21, their message is, all right, Consider the fate of the wicked. Uh, Job, you're one of them. So they're, they're, they're coming at the same idea in different ways. And then in uh, chapters 22 through 27, they're very blunt, and they said, look, God is rebuking you for your great wickedness. What's interesting is that there is a pattern to these speeches in, in chapters uh, 4 through uh, 27, there are three friends, and uh, each one of them, uh, I don't know if I can advance to the next slide, if, if not, no problem, but there are uh, three friends, there we go, uh, you've got Eliphaz, Joe, and then Bildad and Zophar, and after each one of their speeches, Job replies. So round one, you've got Eliphaz, then Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, then Job. And then after you're done with that and you're worn out, then round two. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. And then round three, what's interesting is you have Eliphaz, Job's reply, Bildad, Job's reply. But then you come to chapter 28 and you get this remarkable poem about wisdom. And Zophar never speaks. Uh, there, there's no speech by uh, Zophar in round three. Some have thought, well, this must be a continuation of Job's speech in chapter 27. The problem is, chapter 27, when you read it, Job is very pessimistic and very fatalistic. And chapter 28 is completely different. You might say, well, this is a place where Job changed his perspective. He finally started to see things God's way. The problem with that is, chapter 29, verse 1, Job continues his discourse saying, well, if Job said the words in chapter 28, when he gets to chapter 29, he's forgotten everything he said in 28, or else he's turned his back on it. So that's why uh, there are a lot of Bible teachers, a lot of scholars, who believe that uh, chapter 28 is an interlude, and I, I think that's the case that right in the middle of all of this frustration, for just a moment, the writer breaks in, and we get this window into the message of the book of Job. It kind of foreshadows uh, what's going to come. 
And what we find in this great poem is that Job 28 teaches us how to respond when we face undeserved suffering. Again, we're not saying Job was perfect, but God said to Satan, he said, look at Job, he's a righteous servant. He's blameless. Job didn't deserve what he got. And you might be facing something in your own life where you say, I I don't know why God's allowing this. Why does life have to be so hard? Well, Job 28 will help us. There are three parts to Job 28. The first 11 verses, the first part of this argument, is simply an observation. And and this is is poetry, and you have to be patient with poetry. The writer is setting up his idea. And what he wants us to understand, what he wants us to see, is that, that human beings have been able to do something amazing, and that is to find things like precious metals and minerals in a process that we call mining. And he's just using that to to set things up. So this is what he says. Job 28, verse 1, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the ground and copper is smelted from ore. A miner puts an end to the darkness He probes the deepest recesses for ore in the gloomy darkness. He cuts a shaft far from human habitation in places unknown to those who walk above ground. Suspended far away from people, the miners swing back and forth. And our understanding is that uh, the ancient people would cut these, these shafts, these mine shafts, these holes in the ground, and they would... They would lower the miners down through ropes. And it was really an amazing uh, engineering feat at the time. And they would let them down sometimes on on platforms and and, and they would do their their mining work in in the rock. That's the picture here. Verse 5, food may come from the earth, but below the surface the earth is transformed as by fire. Its rocks are a source of lapis lazuli, containing flecks of gold. So verses 1 to 6 is just saying, wow, look at this. Human beings have figured out how to extract precious metals and precious minerals from the ground in these deep, dark places. And that's something not even animals can do. Verses 7 and 8, no bird of prey knows that path. No falcon's eye has seen it. And and these birds of prey were known for their keen eyesight. Yeah, but they they can't see it. Proud beasts have never walked on it. No lion has ever prowled over it. Of course, the lion then, and maybe even today, was kind of the king of the beasts. Lion represented strength and majesty. Hey, no lion was able to do this. This is pretty remarkable. And then back to some more images, just for effect. Verse 9, the miner uses a flint tool and turns up ore from the root of the mountains. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes spot every treasure. He dams up the streams from flowing so that he may bring to light what is hidden. And our response to this ought to be, wow, this is amazing that human beings can do this. And of course, if you've ever looked at mining operations today, 
mining is done differently, but it's still remarkable, isn't it? Do some of you remember back in 2010 when the uh, 33 Chilean miners were, were trapped? I mean, 2,300 feet under the ground, that's uh, uh, approaching half a mile, isn't it? Not quite, but it's getting close. And yet uh, they were uh, rescued and, and all of them uh, survived. Just an amazing story. So verses 1 to 11 is just an observation that's going to set things up. And it's, it's just saying, look, isn't this amazing? Human beings know where to find hidden things like precious metals or minerals. Just stunning. But here's the problem. By contrast, in verses 12 through 19, wisdom is, is elusive. Even though people have figured out how to mine these precious minerals from the, the deep, dark places of the earth, wisdom's elusive. Verse 12, but where can wisdom be found? And where is understanding located? And, and that's really the key question in this chapter. Remember that the word wisdom is the word skill. And in the wisdom books, it's the skill of living life in a God-honoring way. In Proverbs, it's the skill of living so that life goes smoothly and has success. Here in the book of Job, it's going to be the skill of living adapting to the way God has made life in times of suffering. But where can we find that? It eludes our grasp. Verse 13, no one can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. Now, if you've been reading Proverbs, you might say, wait a minute, that sounds like a contradiction. According to the book of Proverbs, wisdom can be found. It can be learned. It can be discovered by human beings. And this poem is not contradicting that. It's, it's talking here about the source of wisdom. The source is not human. People in and of themselves cannot find the skill of living in a way that that handles the horrendous suffering that we face in life. Verse 14, the ocean depths say, it's not in me, while the sea declares, I don't have it. And the biblical writer here is personifying these, these most uh, uh, inaccessible places in the world, saying they don't even have it. Then in verses 15 through 19, the writer says it, it's too costly to buy, even with precious metals or stones or minerals, all those things that you are able to mine and extract from the ground. You can't buy wisdom with those. Verse 15, gold cannot be exchanged for it, and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or lapis lazuli, Gold and glass do not compare with it, and articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for it. Coral and quartz are not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond pearls. Topaz from Cush cannot compare with it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. You know, that's something that we need to hear, isn't it? Because, honestly, we are used to solving problems with, with money, 
And to a point, there's nothing wrong with that. You have a problem with the roof on your house, if it's leaking, if, if the shingles are, are old, the asphalt's worn off, you, you hire somebody to replace your roof, right? You can do that. Or maybe your business needs a new computer system because the one that you have now isn't working well. And as long as you have the money, you can solve the problem. And of course, when it comes to medicine, there are certain kinds of, uh, of, of illnesses that if, if you have enough money to get the right treatment, you're able to solve those problems. But here's the deal. No amount of money can purchase the wisdom that you need to deal with suffering, to deal with hard times. So, wisdom's elusive, verses 12 to 19. Even to those who are skilled at mining, all of the gold, all the silver that they're able to mine could never purchase the wisdom that's needed in times of suffering. So where does that leave us? Verse 20 re-raises the question again. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is understanding located? The same question that was raised in verse 12. It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed from the birds of the sky. Just repeating what we already know from verses 13 and 14. Abaddon, or destruction, and death say, we have heard news of it with our ears. So these forces, death and destruction, are personified to say, well, We've heard of it, but we don't know where to find it either. Finally, in verse 23, we, we find out where wisdom can be found. But God understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its location, for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything. That's talking about his unlimited understanding when God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he saw wisdom. By the way, it's the same word that's up in verse 24. Uh, the CSB says, translates that as he considered, which is the idea, but it's the same word. He saw wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. What God sees when he looks at wind and water is the wisdom with which he's created the world, the skill that's there. Well, that's great. We, we don't know the way to wisdom, but God does. So where does that leave us? Well, here's the conclusion in verse 28. He, God said to mankind, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn from evil is understanding. You want to find wisdom? Only God has wisdom. You want to access God's wisdom, then you need to fear him. We talked about the fear of the Lord last week in our study of the prologue to the book of Proverbs. Uh, fear doesn't mean that we are terrified 
of God so much that, that we go running and hide in a corner, but there's this, there's this awe, there's this respect, there's, there's a healthy fear knowing that, that God is the ultimate judge. I mean, he's, he's the one who created us, that we answer to him. Friends, it's when we worship him, when we fear him, that's when we find wisdom. Notice the second part of verse 28, and to turn from evil is understanding. You see, the problem is we're always trying to deal with our suffering in, in, in sinful ways, aren't we? What even might be described as cocaine for the soul. We deal with suffering by complaining. Or we deal with suffering by wallowing in bitterness and somehow in, in some kind of a distorted way, that's, that's what helps us get through that, but it's, it only makes the problem worse. It just sends us spiraling down the path of misery. Or maybe we turn to pornography or we turn to drugs or alcohol to try to medicate ourselves from the pain that we experience. But according to this final movement in the book of Job, chapter 28 and verses 20 through 28, the way to respond to undeserved suffering is to trust in God's wisdom. That we are people who worship him, that we are in awe of him. And so we're willing to say, God, we, we trust you. You know the way to wisdom we don't. We are relying on you to get through this situation. And in fact, this interlude in chapter 28 foreshadows how the book of Job is resolved. And very quickly, in chapters 29 to 31, Job insists on his innocence, and he even demands an answer from the Almighty. Chapter 31, verse 35. Remember what he says? He says, let the Almighty answer me. Chapter 32, another character shows up, Elihu. He's been listening to the three friends, and he's pretty upset with them, and he, he, he gets a little bit closer. He's still not right, but he, his advice is better than the friends. His message in chapters 32 to 37 is, Job, your suffering is not because you've sinned against God, but you're suffering because you're so self-righteous. You think you're so holy, you think you're so righteous, and it's really a, a pride kind of a thing. That's why you're suffering. Finally, in chapter 38, God breaks in, and from chapter 38, 1, all the way through chapter 42, verse 5, God just hammers Job with questions that are designed to say, Job, you, you really have no right to question me. I mean, these chapters are just spectacular. Just a sample, 38 verse 4. Uh, where were you when I established the earth? Uh, tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Oh, certainly you know. Uh, God's being sarcastic there, right? Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, did you do that? Were you part of that? No, no, he wasn't. He peppers him with all of these questions. In verse 32 
of chapter 38. Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Uh, interesting that uh, the ancients uh, were, were aware of constellations, uh, the stars in the sky. Yeah, Job, Job, can you bring these out? All these questions. And finally, in chapter 40, Job answered the Lord. Verse 4, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. Basically, he says, uh, I, I think I'll shut up now. But God isn't done with him yet. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, chapter 40, verse 6. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? And that's what Job's been doing, hasn't he? Would you declare my, me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And, and all Job can say is, no, no, I can't. No, I don't. No, I have not. Finally, in chapter 42, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? That's what God asked. Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. And eventually in verse 6 he says, Therefore I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Then in chapter 42, verses 7 through 16, God rebukes the three friends. He, he actually humiliates them, humbles them by telling them to go ask Job to pray for them. Can you imagine that? After giving him chapters of advice, now they have to go and Job prays for them. And, and in God's grace, uh, they, are, uh, you know, they don't face any consequences. Uh, you know, God had said, you, you didn't answer like my servant Job did. And I think he's talking about the beginning of chapter 42. He's not saying that Job was righteous the whole time in, in his response. He's just saying that finally he got it. And so God returns to his policy of blessing the righteous, restoring Job's fortune. I don't think that makes up for a moment what he lost. God's not suggesting that. It's just that now that the test has been passed, people can worship God for who he is, not just for what, he's, what he has given them. But remember, as we look at Job 28, it's really a window into this whole book. It's a good reminder that when we suffer, God doesn't owe us explanations, and he doesn't give us explanations, does he? You know what? Even if he did, explanations would never satisfy us. They would never comfort our broken hearts, would they? No, God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. And as Job 28 says, the way to respond to undeserved suffering is to trust in God's wisdom. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we can trust in the wisdom of God because of the gospel. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 18, where the apostle Paul says that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's our hope, isn't it? 21 years ago, there was a young man in our church 15, 16 years old, who was killed in a driver's ed car accident along with two other students and a teacher. And they were all part of a Christian school, and 
I was, was part of that whole uh, grieving process. I remember thinking a lot about Romans 8, 18, even sharing that at the funeral. I'll never forget standing with this uh, young man's dad just days after the accident in a worship service and, and, and singing that song that Maggie chose, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, singing those words. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we can do that because of the gospel, right? Because we have a Savior who is going to return and everything will be made new. And our present suffering, as, as difficult as it is now, is going to pale in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so we endure suffering as Jesus did. Uh, Jesus is our example for suffering. You know, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we can die to sins and live for righteousness. He paid the penalty that, that I deserve, that you deserve. And through faith in his name, we can be forgiven. That's wonderful news. But what's interesting is that Peter also uses that as an example of how we face suffering. He says that when Jesus suffered, it's in verse 21 of, second, of 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, that when he suffered, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that's what we're called to do as well. Friends, our Savior, to whom we turn for help, is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So when we suffer, let's not demand answers from God. The way to respond to undeserved suffering is to trust in God's wisdom.